Ladies and gentlemen, kicking off the first stop on his world tour, our new president and prophet, Russell M. Nelson. You say you want some revelation. Well, here you go. It's gonna blow your freaking mind. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Today we are May 22nd, 2022. Join Al Dives. We have guest host Christina here as well from Latter Day Ramblings. Uh, she's joined us. Uh, she's going to tell us a little bit about her podcast, and we're going to uh, take a look to this week at President and, and Sister Nelson's Young Adult Devotional, The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints Annual hum- Humanitarian Report Analysis. See how much uh, the church has been helping out the world around us, and I think you're going to be surprised. It's very good stuff. The church's response to a Mormon church leader who was convicted of sex abuse and a cinematic analysis by yours truly of episode five of Hulu's Under the Banner of Heaven. Well, it's great to be with you. This is Dives, and we're joined by Christina. Christina, uh, welcome to the podcast. We're so glad that you're with us. Uh, uh, Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? What are your uh, Mormon bona fides? Uh, You know, uh, what what makes you interested in the uh, Great and Spacious Beehive? Well, um, well, you you invited me because of my Mormon stories episode, um, and I am an ex-Mormon, and I have my own podcast, like you mentioned, Latter-day Ramblings, uh, which I created during my faith crisis as a way to express myself, and that's why I'm here today. So where do you where do you where are you located? Where do you live? Oh, I live in the Netherlands, in Europe. Wow. Oh wow, that's 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 far away. So it's a, you're on a different time zone. That's that's for sure. And uh, what, what do you do for a living? What do you do for a job? Um, well, I uh, tutor. I tutor kids, mm-hmm. and I'm a student. Nice. Wonderful. What got you into uh, podcasting? Uh, well, like I said, I listened. I, I listened to a lot of ex Mormon podcasts as I was um, going through my faith transition, and um, I just thought that it might be fun to start one by myself, just as a way to express uh, the many feelings that I was uh, feeling at the time. Well, we're so glad to have you on the program. Uh, we're going to be discussing a, a lot of things. We've got an action-packed episode, and we're going to kick this right off with the church's 2021 annual report, which was released from thechurchnews.com by Mary Richards on the 13th of May, 2022. So every year, the church gives a humanitarian report, which details what they're doing throughout the world to, uh, you know, to bless the lives of the humans that inhabit this planet. And the church is involved with 4,000 humanitarian pro- projects in almost 200 countries. And that outreach includes an incredible $906 million from the church and 7 million uh, hours of volunteer work. And it's just absolutely incredible when you read through this. There's global humanitarian initiatives that the church is involved. Almost 2 million people were blessed with clean water and sanitation projects. 600,000 students uh, were involved with the church's perpetual education fund, which is uh, loans for going to school, mobility projects, food security projects. The church has partnered with many organizations, including the Catholic Relief Services, Helen Keller, uh, shelter box, you name it. There's clean water, sanitation systems, food security, education resources, vision care, immunizations, wheelchair, mobility access, maternal care, newborn care. And that's not to mention the emergency response that the church has been involved with. A billion vaccine do- doses distributed, 80 million pounds of food, 100,000 individual donors to uh, church, church-sponsored blood drives, and also a significant COVID response. And that's also the church has responded to natural disasters from tornadoes in the United States to uh, global floods in, the, in Europe and the Philippines. 
it's just it's really amazing. And also the missionary and member uh, volunteers, uh, 60 million pounds of goods were donated to Desert Industries, which is the church's thrift thrift store. And also 140,000 participants in self-reliance groups, uh, 10,000 Desert Industries associates served, and also 3,000 addiction recovery programs in 30 countries, 17 languages. The church has employment services. The church has humanitarian and Deseret manufacturing. They have Bishop's Storehouse. They have emotional resilience programs. They have the Just Serve. Uh, the church is involved with that, with 62,000 new local community volunteers registered through Just Serve. They have uh, what used to be called Mormon Helping Hands, but now is called Helping Hands. And the church has also uh, donated projects in, in, in connection with Syria, talking about donating stuffed animals, organizing birthday supplies, assembling meals, delivering valentines, tying quilts. I mean, the church is doing, it's really amazing. The church is really doing it all. It's just, I don't know, it's, it's just really incredible. Um, when you look at the amount of stuff that the church is doing throughout the world, you know, it's it's quite a report. Yeah, they are very well organized when it comes to getting stuff done, that's for sure. They sure are. You know, if you think back to the days of Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, Joseph Smith wasn't exactly known for his organizational skills, but Brigham Young really took the church on a new path of self-reliance, organization, and really mobilizing a lot of people to have maximum impact. Mm-hmm. For and the sure. church has done really well in that is uh, since that time of Brigham Young, I think. Now, the $906 million figure is a very interesting figure because if you look at the previous 2020 report, uh, the 2020 humanitarian report said that the church has only given $70 million. So we're talking about a massive increase in church charitable contributions. You went from 70 to 906 million. And I was really blown away. I was like, my goodness, the church has really stepped it up. I'm going to talk about a tenfold difference in helping those in need. But when you look under the surface, there's more than meets the eye to this $1 billion figure. And this is where our friends from over there at the Widow's Might Report come in. Nobody, I don't think, has a better handle on church finances and church numbers than the Widow's Might Report. They are the gold standard. So the report from the Widow's Might Report, they released a report to talk about the humanitarian report. And sure, the headline says that the church expended $906 million, and that's much more than the previous year. But in contrast, this is the big thing. Where did that money come from? So what the church now is doing is counting donations from church members that are given to other church members or other people which are normally considered pass-throughs, they're counting that as a church donation. So let me, let me. I thought a lot about this. Let's pretend Al and Christina and, and Dives are all in the same church. We all go to the same ward. If the Lord has blessed Christina and Dives and we donate $1 in fast offerings, but the Lord has not blessed Al and oh, he is in need. Uh, <laughs> he's in need of some help. Well, the church then takes Christina and Dives' dollar and dollar, two dollars, gives it to Alan's. Here's Al, here's two dollars for you because you're in need. In times past, the church did not count that as a church donation because fast offerings are generally kept at the local level among members in the same either branch or ward or same stake. But now in the church's humanitarian report, they are counting these pass through or rebranded member generosities as the church giving that donation. So the question I have is, who is giving the donation of a fast offering? Who is supposed to take credit for it? Is 
Christina and Dive supposed to get credit for that, or is that the church donating two dollars to Al? Who is responsible? Who 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 is should be uh, given the credit for that? Uh, I'll chime in on this one, um, and mostly just because uh, we're in the United States, so I would think that under like United States tax law, that um, it would be the uh, donor can uh, claim it as a tax write off. So, like any charitable donation can be claimed on taxes. I'm not sure how things work in the Netherlands, but that's how it would work over here. Um, but I would think that it would be the individual person, the member themselves that made the donation that could uh, take credit for that. Yeah, they are absolutely getting the tax donation. Now, the church is facilitating that donation, though. I mean, they're consolidating those items. It's not always cash. It can be other things like uh you know, people donate to Deseret. They're counting the Deseret Industries. When you go into Deseret Industries and give old clothes and things, they're counting that as well. So you do need the church to help facilitate some of these things. But the question is, is, is this church giving a rebranded member generosity? Who should be taking credit for that? Starting this year, the church is saying that they're going to take credit for that, which is a big departure from previous years. If you look back at the 2020 LDS Charities Report, it says that since 1985, the LDS Latter-day Saint Charities and its affiliates have provided over $2.5 billion worth of assistance in 200 countries and territories. When you do the math on that comment, the church usually does around, according to that comment, around $71 million a year in assistance. That's why this $900 million figure is such a huge chasmic, chasmic difference. You can also look at Elder Oaks, who gave a comment in 2016 that the church spends about $40 million per year on humanitarian projects around the world. So, the true number here is probably between 40 and $70 million a year. If you take out the fast offering, if you take out some of the other stuff, if you do the math from this year's humanitarian report, $850 million of the 906 was member pass-through, fast offering donations and those type of things, which generally stay at a local level. So the church this year is doing about $56 million in humanitarian when you strip out all of the other stuff, which is very much in line with what they have done in previous years. Yeah, that's a significant chunk of change. Well, it's just a lot more than what I'm doing. First of all, $50 million is a lot more than I'm donating to anybody. True. <laughs> yeah, but you know what was it? Eight hundred and fifty million you're talking about uh, coming from the members themselves, right? Eight hundred and fifty of the million is just fast offering pass throughs solicited from members, given back to other members via the church welfare and bishop storehouse projects. So obviously, any giving is a good thing, and the church mobil mobilizing giving, and that's a good thing, and uh, that should be said. But it seems. I don't know how to phrase it, but it seems a little disingenuous to say that if you give money to the church, if I give money to the church and the church gives money to Christina, that the church is then saying, I'm giving, the church is saying, I'm giving money to Christina when really it was DVs. Yeah, for real. Uh, you know, on like a more local level, uh, say uh, your Relief Society president takes up a bunch of donations of cold winter coats uh, take down to the home to the homeless shelter. And then uh, she goes down and uh, makes a uh, post on Facebook of her donating all these coats to the, the, to the homeless shelter saying, I went down and I donated all these coats and takes full credit for everybody in her wards donations. You know, that, that's just real cheeky, isn't it? <laughs> well, and, and, and that, 
if you take that into the DI, let's take that a step further. If you donate those coats and drop them off into the DI, and then the church gives them or even sells them to someone else, then the church is saying, I gave the coats to someone else, when really it was a member's generosity, that Relief Society president's generosity of bringing the coats in to begin with. Yeah, or the church wouldn't have those. Mm-hmm. So is, the, is that Relief Society president, is she donating the coats or is the church donating the coats? Yeah. And I mean, really, between the two of them, it was the members themselves that were uh, taking up the donations and get, dropping them off at her house. Right. So, I mean, when you look at the report, it is it seems pretty stunning that the church is really it seemed like, wow, they're really stepping up their game. Nine hundred million dollars is a lot. Mm-hmm. But then once again, when you peel back the onion and you look under the surface, yeah. unfortunately, it's not quite as um, rosy as you would like it to have. Yeah. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. It's, you know, they just pulled a little switch arrow on you. <laughs> yeah. What are your what are your thoughts on this article, Christina? Um, well, I, I am, I'm not sure. I mean, of course it's, it's good that the church is, you know, trying to do good with, um, their means, but there's a lot more that they could be doing. And, you know, they have the responsibility with all the power and all the money that they have, they have the responsibility to do more than this, I think. Yeah. For, remember, $40 million. Let's, let's look at the numbers here. I'm a big numbers guy. So according to Enzyme Peak, we have a $1 million surplus in tithing every year that gets put into, excuse me, $1 billion of excess tithing gets put into Enzyme Peak. So there's a billion. The church generates $10 billion a year from Enzyme Peak. Enzyme Peak is worth $105 billion. And they, you know, think about maybe 9% stock market return. That's a general number. About So they get about $10 billion from Enzyme Peak. And then according to the widow's might, the church also, from all of their commercial enterprises. Remember, they own radio stations. They own newspaper outlets. They own KSL. They own, uh, uh, what is the name of their insurance? Well, yeah, they own they own commercial real estate that they rent out to people. They also have the uh, uh, Deseret Mutual benefit. That's what I was looking for. Deseret Mutual. They own insurance companies. They own ranches. They own hunting reserves. Those are all four percent of Florida, right? Yeah, they own four percent of Florida. So we have one one billion in tithing. We have ten billion from Enzyme Peak, and according to the widow's might, all of those commercial uh, commercial enterprises is another fifteen billion. So the church is bringing in about twenty six billion dollars a year, and according to this report. They're actually, forget the fast offerings, that's really members. They're donating $50 million out of $25 billion a year. That's not 10%. That's not even 1%. So the church has the ability to do $50 million a year. That's true. But it seems like the church has the ability to do much, much more. Yeah, for sure. And that's what I'd like to see. Um, but I, I'm not quite done with this article because, you know, let me just talk about Donald Trump's charity. Now, I hate to put in the church's LDS charity and Donald Trump's charity. That's how it'd be good. Yeah, I, I do for a reason. It's because Donald Trump, see, I was a veteran. I'm a veteran of the armed forces. Donald Trump made some incredible claims that said he was donating lots and lots of money to veterans organizations and just trust me, but he didn't show anybody their books. Well, some intrepid reporters from the New York Times said, well, we got to find get to the bottom of this. And what they did is they decided to call every veterans organization in the world. There's several hundred of them, but they called all of them. And they said, hey, has the Donald Trump Charitable Foundation donated anything to you? And it turned out that Donald Trump didn't donate to any of the veterans organizations. That's why he was fined $2 million by the state of New York and his Charitable Foundation was shut down. What this report shows to me, though, it's it's kind of like a tr- 
trust me. The church is saying, trust us. We are giving that $50 million out. Now, we're not going to tell you the X's and O's. We're not going to show you the ledger line, but you just need to trust us. And when it comes to, I don't know, my modern sensibilities, when I see people like Donald Trump or other charities that seem to run afoul, when they're not independently audited, I just... Call me extremely cynical, but I have a hard time trusting people. Maybe that's yeah. a problem that's in within myself. Am I getting this wrong? No, but when it comes to something, especially a 501c3 charitable organization, there really needs to be that kind of transparency. I mean, you can't go and claim your tax-exempt status, and, and it's having your cake and eating it, too. You, you, you can't play both sides of the field like that. Now, the church did re release the, the article is just a summary. It's an executive summary. The church released a 48 page more in-depth annual report in the in-depth annual report. This is an amazing report from what it does not tell you. I'm turned to page 11 on page 11 of the church's annual report, which is linked in the uh, article that we put in the show notes. On page 11, you have a picture of a woman who's digging a garden with another woman. And then uh, the, there's another picture. These are like half the page. Another picture of a woman who's reading a story to a young boy in a school setting. And then you have a quote from President Henry B. Eyring, the second counselor and the first president that says, quote, when we are engaged in service to others, we think less about ourselves, end quote. And that's all of page 11. So this full detailed report um, uh, on several other pages. It has a picture of some sister missionaries who are anxiously engaged. And again, they're, they're pulling weeds, but that's the whole page. There's no, there's no really figures. There's no really ledgers. There's no real, there's no meat to this thing. There's no. not a detailed report that one would expect to be able to know that, yes, we are spending $50 million and this is exactly what we're spending it on. This is where that money is coming from. And, you know, this, that's what I would have hoped to see from the church. Yeah, especially with, if they're going to talk about being so transparent about things. And they do talk about being transparent in their uh, donations and in their charitable giving. So I, I don't know why they would hide the figures. Now, if you look at the, uh, I've only got a last little bit to say on this, but if you look at the Community of Christ's uh, reports, now remember the Community of Christ, that's the RLDS church which, uh, you know, the Brigamite sect branded as apostate. But if you looked at their financial reports, guess what? They have independent auditors who come in and independently audit the community of Christ and their affiliates, and they give a detailed report. And guess what? In their detailed report, it talks about the number of dollars that they spend on healthcare, the number of money on utilities, financials, materials, energy, how much do they spend on internet, fixed income, how much do they spend on healthcare, how much for buildings, how much do they have in stocks, how much do they have on you know domestic equity, international equity. Guess what? Their report, which is 36 pages long, it does not have one picture in it. There's not one picture in this report because it's a real report of the church finances. It talks about this is how much we have in agency bonds, corporate bonds, foreign bonds. This is how much is in our mutual funds, fixed income, domestic income, international income. Here's how much cash we have on hand. Here's our liabilities. Here's how, here's how many mortgages we have. And here's our long-term debts. Here's our endowment funds. Here's how much we have to have in our pension to pay our retiring profits and presidents. Al and Christina, help me. How is it that the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, now known as Community Christ, how do they have more transparency than the only true and living church upon the face of the whole earth? Your thoughts, Christina? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that, that is a good question. I don't know. I feel like, the, yeah, the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, 
just seems to care more about image than disclosing actual details and being actually transparent about their uh, financials. Um, but why? Um, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> well, I, I, for one, think that the community of Christ really needs to get more on the ball. Because how are people supposed to know that they're supposed to feel good about this if they don't have pictures? <laughs> pictures are really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so one, one thing in the Community Christ Report is that they have a $15 million operating budget, and they just line it all out for you. This is how much we bring in in tithing. This is our operating budget. And one thing the Community Christ sh has shown is that they have a deficit in their pension for some of their, um, you know, they have a, a number of paid employees, and that their pension has a shortfall. It's supposed to be at $120 million for a fully funded pension, but they only have $94 million. So it's just showing you the everything that here's what we bring in, here's what we pay, here's our assets, here's our debts, here's what we're working on, and this is what we're doing. How is that not faith-promoting? How is that not helping people have build confidence in their church? Well, and it doesn't sound like it's all that difficult, D-Base. No, they have an independent audit who comes through and releases this report for them. So it's just a little frustrating for me that the church um, needs to hide behind these things. But the problem with hiding is there's no more places to hide. We know what's in Enzyme Peak now. We know the church's real estate outlay, uh, what, the, what the church owns in real estate. And we have a very good idea of how much this is all is and how much tithing comes in, how much the commercial assets bring in. We're really, really close. So the, I, this worked back in the 1900s. Nobody had any clue. Back in the 1980s, nobody had any idea. We know now. So, the, I mean, it's kind of like the Gospel Topics essays. You could hide for so long, but the hiding time is over. We all know what's going on. So, And, and, and I guess even more fundamental than that, Dives, is, you know, this is a, a church that proclaims to be very transparent about all this information. And yet this information is only released through uh, leaks, uh, whistleblowers, uh, through lawsuits, through... Uh, the, you know, being dragged out of there uh, by, by pulling teeth, um, you know, from the uh, the Widow's Might organization doing their estimate. So, like, the only reason we have this information is because we had to go in and pull it out ourselves. Uh, it's not like I, that just doesn't seem like the spirit of transparency to me. No, it doesn't. Um, but uh, for our listeners out there, if you have any feedback on what you think the church should be doing with their regards to their finances and transparency, head on over to mormonnewsroundup.org. That's with two ends, mormonnewsroundup.org. Let us know your thoughts about what you think the church should be doing for their transparency and for their humanitarian uh, efforts, um, knowing what we know about how much the church is worth. And that does bring us to our uh, next next article, which is Under the Banner of Heaven, Episode 5. Yep, here I go. Okay, you guys. So uh, episode five came out this week, um, and I always uh, pick an article about this um, uh, uh, that's been you know published somewhere so that our uh, listeners can go and uh, and get to the root of where what I'm talking about. This one comes from Slate from May nineteenth, twenty twenty two, by Max Perry Mueller. The title of it is "Under the Banner of Heaven Repeats the Book's Fundamental Mistake." So. Last week, we talked about the Deseret News' opinion, which was as close as we could get to the church's official opinion, where the Deseret News did an uh, interview with Brenda Lafferty's sister, and uh, she didn't approve of it because, and I, I got to hand this to, to her as well, that that's, uh, she's right. Um, they gave uh, her, uh, Brenda's journals 
to uh, Dustin Lance Black uh, to make this uh, series, and you just don't see a whole lot of Brenda in it. You see that Brenda is kind of this side story, maybe even like the the inciting event of it. But this really isn't about Brenda or her murder even. This is more about the Lafferty's and uh, the priesthood power. And uh, it's it, it feels, uh, this series feels a lot like mansplaining, you know. They could have gone for so many different uh, perspectives on this. And yet uh, it seems like, and maybe this is residual from Dustin's childhood. Maybe this is something that, that he still needs to figure out and deal with, but it just feels like he can't get past the perspective of of a man. You know, the uh, fictional uh, character that we get the the point of view from is uh, this uh, detective Pyrie. He he's not even a real character, and yet the whole uh, this whole series focuses around him and his feelings and his views and what's going on inside of him. So maybe that's easier for. Dustin to identify with that rather than a strong-willed, um, more of a liberal mindset uh, LDS woman from Twin Falls, Idaho, uh, in the early '80s. But you know, there, there's been all kinds of criticism about this series back and forth. In fact, I think uh, Divas yourself, uh, we talked about um, we talked about something uh, that you said this wasn't this didn't what didn't reflect your experience with. Mormonism in the 80s, and that's completely legitimate. Um, but what we miss out on that is, you know, I, I could say, well, this does reflect my experience with Mormonism in the 80s, but all of that's very subjective. What, we, what we're missing out on is the objectivity of this, and that objectivity is that you have a very patriarchal church that's um, just all about the, uh, it's all about the men still. Um, and then we got like, you know, the one thing that's in, it, that's in this episode that I have to point out, um, and, uh, you know, it, it's the, the priesthood leadership uh, does tend to get involved with the legal system. And that still happens today. Um, there, I, there is a, an article I'm going to put in the show notes, and uh, we're not going to uh, go into this very much, but I'm going to put it in the show notes. And uh, the... Uh, this is a follow-up from a couple weeks ago. There was a, a sexual offender in uh, Minnesota. He did get convicted. I'll say that much. And the church, once again, is trying to do the damage control there rather than helping the victims. And so um, this is something that keeps happening time and time again. Is you see the stake president and the bishop uh, getting involved in the legal system, trying to protect the priesthood holders rather than trying to get to the justice for the victims. And uh, that's that's kind of the the way that it's heading right now, and we do see that. So, and that's something that we actually saw in episode five. Was it seemed rather ridiculous in episode five that they were yeah. turning people over to their stake president, but actually in the article that you mentioned from Minnesota of the uh, elders quorum president in Minnesota who got convicted of uh, who was first of all he was already a on this registered sex offender list, and then he was convicted of more sex crimes while he was there that the church uh, took a position of uh, defending the church rather than defending the victim. So we're still seeing that. Uh, Christina, have you watched the Under the Banner of Heaven series? You watched episode five. What are your thoughts so far on uh, specifically episode five and the series as a whole? Well, the the series, I'm actually, I'm really enjoying it. I watched it since it uh, started premiering. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it doesn't entirely reflect my own experience with the Mormon church since, you know, I grew up in here in Europe, uh, not in the eighties. Mm. I wasn't even alive <laughs> back then. Yeah. Um, but, uh, there, there's a core to it that does feel true to me. Um, mm. the nature of the patriarchal church, of course. Um, but it's really kind of scary to see the extremes of that, um, which are mm. shown in, uh, under the banner of heaven. And especially in episode five, when, um, what was the, the, the name of the character? who started uh, practicing polygamy with his oh, wife uh, and uh, yeah, his daughter. Yeah, Dan, Dan Lafferty. Dan Lafferty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was very very shocking to see, and it uh, honestly made me want to throw up, so it made oh, me very uneasy. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and, and that sort of thing, it happens frequently. Uh, if you look at the newspapers or the media around uh, the state of Utah, you'll see it's just loaded with, oh, well, this uh, LDS father – uh, molested his own kids and you know they i've heard it time and again uh you know where it's just there seems to be this mentality and i i okay i'll tell you this it doesn't get taught in church but i really want to find out where this mentality comes it's from implicit i yeah. feel like is it just implicit across the culture that men feel like they have sexual rights to their own children because that uh, that's what it feels like and i don't know where it comes and to from women but, in general yeah and to women in general exactly so thank you very much for your thoughts on that, Christina, because uh, th- this is one thing that I'm very sensitive about with this is I really didn't want this thing to become just Al over here mansplaining something. I wanted to get your perspective as well, <laughs> because that's what oh, that's what this you. whole thing is. And and that and that is uh, a very legitimate criticism uh, for people to have. I think a lot of times that when people say, well, this isn't what the LDS church was like for me growing up. You're right, Christian. I mean, it's, this isn't what the LDS church was like in uh, the Netherlands or Europe or even outside of the state of Utah. But for several people within the state of Utah, this is probably what uh, um, their experience was like. And I, I think that, uh, well, Dustin Black has, uh, I think he's tried to go too far and do too much with uh, this series I think he's kind of viewing this as his one shot to get all the truth out. So I think he's just cramming too much in there. And as a result, uh, I really wish he would have done more with uh, with Brenda's perspective or, you know, uh, maybe. Yes, Diane. I agree. Yeah. I, I, or, or even Diane's perspective. Uh, that's Ron Lafferty's wife that divorced him and ran off. Or shoot, even let's go with the Relief Society president. She was in the middle of everything. She was quite the busybody. Uh, let's go with her perspective. But instead, we get just more and more of the, the priesthood mansplaining going on, don't we? Yeah, that was a bit disappointing. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm, for sure. So, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll put those uh, those articles in the show notes. Anybody that wants to go read them, these are uh, really interesting articles and very. This is about the most legitimate criticism that I, I just don't see any way around that for for Dustin Black uh, is that he just took the wrong point of view. Yeah, it does seem to be rather man centered, and you, and you wonder where these men get this idea that um, they can marry their daughters until you look at the founder of the religion, and he brought in. Um, people into his home who he said were his daughters, were his mm-hmm. adopted daughters. Yeah. And then he ended up marrying them at young ages. And so you, you really can't have a moral authority and say, well, we don't do that anymore. Well, do you condemn what Joseph Smith did? 
um, well, no, we don't condemn it. Well, then it's going to perpetuate and lead to more of these types of circumstances. It's yeah. not just Joseph Smith because Brigham Young and John Taylor and Wilford Woodruff also had very wide age gaps. Now, they didn't have the underage uh, uh, child brides that Joseph Smith had, but you're talking for Wilford Woodruff, a greater than 50-year span in between one of his marriages uh, with his wife. And he was like, I don't know, I think he was like uh, 75. He married a 21-year-old. Yeah. And so we're, it's setting a precedence that um, wide age gaps can be tolerated, not just a one-off, oh, Joseph Smith, that's a one-off. We don't really understand that. And we don't do that anymore. No, no, no. It happened for a long time. Yeah, it for real did. And that really leads us into our next article, which Christina is going to give to us uh, about <laughs> Joseph Smith and Google results. Yeah, so uh, last week, uh, May 13th, 2022, um, the account This Week in Mormons uh, tweeted this. Um, a colleague has been watching Under the Banner of Heaven and said, so Joseph Smith had 33 wives. It appears Google is in Ch Church HQ's corner, and it shows the Google result for the search. How many wives did Joseph Smith have? And Google says he only had one. Um, mm. And yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> legally speaking, legally speaking, uh, he was civilly only married to Emma. So on a technicality, Google would be correct. But of course, there's a lot more nuance to this story. And um, even the church itself uh, admits to in the gospel topic essays that Joseph Smith had about 30 to 40 plural wives. So what do you guys think? Yeah, I never really considered this before this article came out, but it, it reminds me of Joseph Smith, before he died, um, shortly before he, he died, he said, quote, what a thing it is for a man to be accused of committing adultery and having seven wives when I can find only one. I am the same man and as innocent as I was 14 years ago, and I can prove them all perjurers, end quote. And that's from History of the Church, volume six, page one, four, uh, four, four, eleven. Um, so technically speaking, Joseph Smith, I never really thought about this before this tweet came out, but Joseph Smith, he did not lie. Because technically speaking, he was legally married to only one person. And you could say the same thing about uh, Warren Jeffs. Yeah, he has a lot of women that he's spiritually married to, but he's only married to one person. So I guess, like you said, Christina, technically speaking, Google is correct. Joseph Smith was married to only one wife. And so you, the people who say, well, the church never told me about that Joseph Smith was married to more than one wife. Well, I guess technically speaking, <laughs> it's all very technical. Uh, uh, it yeah, it, it it's, feels it's, uh, semantics. Yeah, it, it feels like you, uh, a mom is sitting there, sitting her two kids down, trying trying to get them controlled, and sitting next to each other and saying, "Don't touch your sister." And so, you know, he's sitting there pointing his finger over there, like just not crossing the line. I'm not touching her. I'm not touching her. I'm like, okay, yeah, that, oh, good job, Joseph. You really skirted that issue. Technically, I'm only married to one by the laws of man. This goes back to the under banner of heaven a little bit, but the, according to the laws of God, he's going to be sealed to all these, uh, all forty of these wives in the afterlife. Uh, well, let's we have to walk that back just a little bit because some of his ceilings were apparently for time only. Some of his ceilings were for time and all eternity. Some of his ceilings were eternity only, That's and some right. of his marriages were time only. Mm -hmm. So. But after he died, by the way, a number of women posthumously sealed themselves to him so that they could be part of his, you know, priestly or kingly line. So yeah. we really don't know how many Wait. people. What mm -hmm. was, what's the point of the time only 
ceilings. Uh, what 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 indeed is the point of a time only ceiling? <laughs> you're you're asking the wrong guy here. <laughs> it, it's really just it, this sounds like an excuse that BYU students uh, use to run down to uh, Las Vegas and get married over the weekend and then have it annulled on Monday. Uh, uh, Christine, <laughs> Christina, remember Joseph Smith was married to other men's wives, polyandrous. So yeah. some of those women were already sealed to their husbands. Yeah, they were already married. So they're already yeah. sealed, and a woman at that time cannot be sealed to two men, but a man could be sealed to two women. So when he when he married them, it was for time mm-hmm. only. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so what, it's, it's what, all very what, confusing. Yeah, well done, though, Christine, pointing that out. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's just another hole in the argument. Yeah, that that does bring us to our next article, which, uh, well, we are sponsored, first of all, that brings us to our sponsorship. We are sponsored by SignatureBooks.com. So head on over to www.SignatureBooks.com. And we need to um, talk a little bit about uh, their latest book, which has come out, which is on Susie Young Gates, Mm -hmm. who was the daughter of Brigham Young. And we're going to give you a little bit of a snippet of the first 40 pages or so of this book, which is very timely considering that we've been talking about Under the Banner of Heaven with Polygamy, Joseph Smith's results, and now we have Susie Young Gates. So what happened in the first 40 pages of of the book here that was written uh, for Susie Young Gates, Al? Yeah, yeah, I'll head this one up. Uh, Susie Young Gates, Daughter of Mormonism by Romney Burke is the title of the book. Uh, Just come out from Signature Books. This is about... (laughs) A very uh, so um, Romney Burke, I guess he was a doctor, and he he talks about that a little bit in the introduction of his process of writing this book, and he, he's married to a lady who is the great granddaughter of Susie Young Gates, and they started digging into their ancestry and uh, genealogy, and they were able to find a whole bunch of documents. I mean, this lady. She was a writer, if nothing else. I mean, she left so many documents and so many papers. She left manuscripts and novels and drafts of novels and poetry. I mean, she was just, uh, she loved to write. And so this guy poured over all these uh, these documents that she left behind and then compiled it into a very well-researched, very well-documented book uh, all about the life of one of Brigham Young's, um, I, I, let's see, would this be one of his younger daughters? It's not from his first wife. It's from one I of his, la- his latter wives. I want to say it's his 22nd wife. Yeah, exactly. From his 22nd wife. She's born in 1856. Lucky oh, number 22. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Susan was born. In fact, it's kind of funny because like there was controversy about her name even, and all this is in the book. I mean, this is really fascinating history. There's, um, the, so when she was born, they're like, well, what are we going to name her? And, you know, they're like, oh, I don't know what to name her. <laughs> the final, you know, Brigham wasn't even anywhere to be seen. So he's like, oh, you know, they can't consult with the father who, uh, who should give her, you know, what her name should be. Uh, but her mother decides, you know, we'll call her uh, uh, Suzanne or Susanna. Uh, it kind of depends on uh, whether it's pronounced with the, you know, the H at the end or not. But, um, yeah, and, and then they just kind of, uh, they tossled around a little bit with the, the name. And, you know, sometimes they call her Susan. Sometimes they call her Sue uh, and Sousa. Uh, you know, this is it's just kind of how it went. She, she answered to all kinds of uh, adaptations of her moniker, which I can understand. I mean, I grew up myself having about 50 different nicknames and I still answer to all of them. Uh, so yeah, I mean, 
Dives is about the only name I won't answer to nowadays. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so this is a really fascinating look. We're going to keep this brief because we are going to be talking about her in the future. But in the first 40 pages of the book, it really talks a lot about what took place in downtown Salt Lake City in Brigham Young's really his kingdom of all of his wives and all of his children. He lived in a giant household of over 80 people. Yeah, and And you can can still tour this, uh, the Lion House and the Beehive House today. Yeah. I, now I toured them and I honestly didn't realize that I had toured them in the past because I used to live in Salt Lake City and I honestly didn't realize the history that I was standing under. I mean, it, it's an amazing story to see how a household of 80 people can uh, be run. It's just it's really insane. Um, Christina and I were talking about this particular book and she said that she had heard the rumor that uh, Brigham Young did not take very good care of his wives. And that is not what I have read so far in this book. It seemed like he did take very good care of his wives. In fact, when the saints were suffering and when the saints uh, did not have food to eat, it seemed like Brigham Young and his family were taken pretty good care of. Now, I have not gotten to the end of the book, so I'm not sure what the exact answer will be, but I am looking forward to reading the rest of it. And to our listeners out there, head on over to Signature Books and check out this book, and you will not be disappointed. Yeah, I mean, so far in the first uh, 40 pages, Divas, even if uh, you're not all that enthralled with Sousa, you're going to get a pretty interesting uh, perspective on Brigham Young's ancestry and where his family came from, because I believe chapter two it is, is all about the New England heritage of, you know, Brigham Young was born in Vermont, but boy, his grandfather and great-grandfather, they all moved around like all over the place in New England. So really good read. They sure did. Now, our next article is is about Mormon missionaries on TikTok. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, So this article is published by Salt Lake Tribune. Let me just pull it up Mm -hmm. Um, because, uh, yeah, Divis had to send it to me in screenshots because I don't have access to the Salt Lake Tribune. Mm -hmm. Uh, That is very unfortunate. It's a very exclusive publishing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it says, um, the title is TikTok or Tracting. LDS missionaries are singing, dancing, and preaching online, but do these videos work? So uh, it was published uh, May 15th, 2022, and it just talks about uh, the emerging presence of missionaries using social media, uh, especially TikTok, to spread uh, the gospel message, um, mostly in fun ways, like like it says, singing, dancing, dancing. playing sports, stuff like that, just to attract people to the faith uh, that would otherwise maybe seem boring or uninteresting to people. Uh, but the question this article really asks is whether it is it has been effective at attracting people to the faith or not. Um, so what are your guys' thoughts on that? Well, first of all, thanks for for bringing that article to our attention, Christina, because I think it's very interesting. And you see a lot of people, they're going viral all over. They're on YouTube, they're on Instagram, they're on TikTok, they're on Facebook. They're absolutely everywhere, all of these missionaries, especially during the quarantine times. Now, I'm extremely jealous of most of these missionaries because guess what? I was a music major. I wasn't even allowed to play any music. And that seems like all some of these guys do. I wasn't allowed to dance. I wasn't allowed to play sports. I wasn't allowed to do any of these things. And now all of these missionaries not only are they doing them, but it seems to be church approved. What has changed? Uh, good question. I guess uh, the church saw this as an opportunity. Uh, maybe what, well, I, I think that this change happened pre-COVID even. And I, I, think co- I think the COVID shutdown brought it out. But um, I, I, as I recall, I think there was missionaries making TikToks uh, even before the COVID shutdown. But uh, it certainly has grown exponentially. 
Well, is this is this idea is that we need to reach the younger generation and they're all on TikTok? They're not going. You're not going to be able to knock on their doors and find some of these younger people. You need social media and these other things to be able to find a young generation. Is that the idea? Uh, probably. I, I'm curious. Uh, now, the, the, uh, Christina's uh, original question was, do I think it was effective? I'm thinking probably not, mostly because the uh, generation that they're targeting with TikToks doesn't seem to be all that interested in any religion anymore. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, religion, religiosity, especially on, you know, Generation Z is definitely on the decline. You know, I, I just wonder, you know, when I was a missionary, I wasn't even allowed to send emails to my mother. I had a pre- one day off a week preparation time and computers were considered, honestly, they were considered evil. I know mm-hmm. some people yeah. don't believe me, but they really were. I had to write handwritten letters to my parents who were both divorced at the time. So I, and I didn't have a copy machine, especially if I was out in the middle of nowhere. I had to write the same letter twice to my mother and father instead of going down to a public library and writing an email into my parents. And by the way, my father was not active for the entire time of my mission. He eventually came back into into activity. Um, but do you think my faith-promoting stories for my mission would have helped my father come back to the church? They sure would have. And if I had been able to send him emails, he would have been able to get a lot more information about it. So maybe the church wised up that using some of this technology and some of these things can really help get the message out. Yeah, the, the, church, uh, the church has proven over and over again that they're not afraid of change. They just um, really seem to drag their feet until they are certain that it's the change that they want to make. So, uh, yeah, I mean, giving missionaries uh, laptops and tablets and cell phones, these were things that were around when I was a missionary. Well, maybe not tablets, but cell phones were around. But even then, missionaries weren't allowed to have them. Laptops were around. We certainly weren't allowed to have them. I think, Al, you carried around typewriters, as I recall. Um, <laughs> uh, you know what, Dives? I did. I had a, a, a this electronic typewriter where I, I I would pack it in my suitcase with me when I went um, apartment to apartment. I could type out an entire email or an entire letter and then just hit print and feed the paper into it, and it would just print all everything that I'd just written. It was a really awesome typewriter. Yeah, if you want to learn more about your humble host, by the way, head on over to Patreon, and we've got a couple of interviews uh, of each other, and you can learn more about our backstory. But again, going back to Christina's question, is this effective? If you look at the church's conversion numbers, and I know that they're during the pandemic, I get that, that the pandemic slowed things down, but if you look at convert baptisms, it's not very impressive. Let me just tell you a quick story of a missionary who I um, was talking to who was a member of the military, and he was there for, uh, you know, one week in a month sort of thing. He came back from his mission from California, and he was talking about, you know, during Cal- his mission, a lot of California was locked down. I mean, California, Governor Newsom locked down California harder than any other governor, governor out there. These missionaries could not go door to door. They could not do anything. They, he spent most of his mission on Facebook. TikTok, Instagram, and cold calling and cold email and cold texting people. And I asked him about the effectiveness of his mission and those efforts. And let me tell you, he said, well, we we had discussions with four people, not four baptisms. We had discussions with four people. The amount of effort that goes into these TikToks, YouTubes, and other things, Mm -hmm. um, and the amount of time that these missionaries are spending out there trying to contact people in this manner, for him, he said it was one of the least effective things that you could possibly do. And I understand that that is only one person's perspective, but if you look at the convert baptism numbers, they seem to be declining. 
Yeah, for sure. Yes. And also what I feel like might be upsetting, like any effectiveness that Mormon TikTokers could have is the prominence and popularity of ex-Mormon TikTok, uh, which I don't know if you know, but it, it's uh, some ex-Mormon users are very, very big on TikTok, very popular. Oh, yeah. And, and, and so people and, are more familiar with that than <laughs> with Mormons. And so yeah, for they sure. feel like less attracted to it, probably. Uh, well, and I think you got to look at the content there as well, Christina, is that um, like with the ex-Mormon TikTok, you've got a lot more, um, what, maybe shocking value, uh, much more controversial content. Um, all that I'm seeing from the more, the pro-Mormon TikToks seems to be really uh, watery and dry, you know, that dries, dries one word for it, I suppose, but it just, it's not, it's not compelling. You're seeing a bunch of guys in white shirts and ties dancing and singing and, you know, throwing around a little blue book with gold lettering on it. I, I It just doesn't seem to be anything anybody cares about. But, oh, you know, finding out that, oh, uh, this uh, church that's got 16 million people that really believe in it was founded by a guy who liked to stare at a rock in a hat and tell people where to find buried treasure and use that same rock, that same hat to translate the Book of Mormon, their you know main scripture that these kids on TikTok are throwing around and you know dancing with, it's uh, it's far more compelling um, and entertaining uh, content yeah, so funnier, for the ex Mormon. Yeah. yeah, for sure. So it's funnier to make fun of something than you know TikTok is really you know, what I'm hearing, Christina. Is you think you know TikTok is a better platform for kind of making fun of things and mocking people and pointing mm -hmm. out absurdities than trying to promote faith. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yes, I don't know what what uh, platform would be better at um, uh, supporting or yeah supporting faith. Mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe Facebook well, I, I, or something at this point. Do you think that the church is releasing these missionaries to try to combat what you said? I'm not honestly, I'm not familiar at all with the ex Mormon TikToks. I, I don't even have TikTok on my phone. So, mm -hmm. do you think that the church is releasing these missionaries to try to combat all of the negative TikTok stuff that's out there? That's why they're sanctioning it when they really would rather not. Yeah, I mean, I think that might be a possibility that like a someone in PR kind of stepped up and was like, "Hey, we should probably do something about this." Mm -hmm. <laughs> counteract the ex-Mormon wave. Now, we know that some of these uh, so-called influencers out there, once they get enough followers, if they're pro-Mormon, the church will step in and start giving them a subsidy. Uh, that, that's well-documented from some of these mom, so-called Mormon mommy blogs, some of these Instagram people. If you're pro-church and you get enough followers, you will become sponsored by the church itself. That's like, um, who's that famous one? It was Haley Reverts who was sponsored by the church. She did a, a Mormon Stories interview. Yeah. Oh, yes, I know her, yeah. Yeah, she, 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 was, uh, she was paid every single month by the church to do pro-church uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, social media stuff. So, I mean, the church knows that they're probably a little bit behind the eight ball on this. And what you, you really, I mean, can you imagine? You can't have, uh, you know, President Oaks on TikTok doing something. It's just, it's not going to work. I mean, that would be and, so funny. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's on, it's a, it just doesn't work. So you need to have someone who's not paid from church headquarters and not is a white old man trying to combat a growing influence of, somewhat negative church coverage, which you're going to find on a lot of these platforms. I, I, I have to wonder is uh, if this is my, maybe 
uh, one of the driving movements behind uh, trying to get the rebranding and getting rid of the term Mormon. Uh, because anytime that you type in Mormon into uh, TikTok, if you're searching for it, you're going to come up with ex-Mormon as well. Wonder if that's- yeah, that's interesting. That's a good question. I wonder if these people put hashtag Mormon in their TikToks, because if you don't, you're not going to find them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably. I don't, I don't know the effectiveness. I don't know how many referrals you're going to get from a couple of dancing missionaries in an apartment. I really, I really don't know how much effect that's going to have. No, but um, it, it seems like a well-documented way to see people devolve into insanity while being locked <laughs> in a, an apartment. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, when I was a missionary, we did do dancing in our apartments, but believe uh-huh. me, I yeah. wouldn't have put it out to the world. That would have been something that I would have been blackmailed for. I would have paid money to uh-huh. keep that underground. I wouldn't have promoted it. Yeah, exactly. You know, so it's a big difference, I guess. I guess I'm old school. Um, but that anything else on this? Or are we going to hit our, our last article here? I, I think we covered it pretty good. Uh, Christina, okay. do you have anything else? No, I don't have anything else. Okay, now our final article here, and this is we're going to try to do something else. We're trying to do a slightly a uh, bit of a deep dive into the church's young adult devotional that they just did. Now, uh, President Nelson did a worldwide young adult devotional back on May 15th. And I know it's May 22nd, so we're a little bit behind, but it wasn't released until after our podcast went out last week. So I do want to cover this quite a bit in, um, in, uh, I, I do want to cover this quite a bit. So we're going to start here. This was a, a devotional that was given to, there was a lot of publicity about this. There was letters sent to all over the place. And when the church released the uh, newsroom reports of this, they're showing people surging onto Temple Square, tens of thousands of people. Everyone couldn't even get into the conference center. The conference center fits 21,000 people. Well, it, they couldn't even fit them all in. And that's what the church headline was, is that young adults are surging for President Nelson's message. And um, I do want to discuss in depth uh, President Nelson's remarks and get you guys' insights uh, into his remarks. But I want to start off with uh, Wendy Nelson, uh, President Nelson's wife's remarks as well. Now, look, I treat Wendy Nelson kind of the same way that I treat Melania Trump. She Melania Trump, she never signed up. She's not in a paid position either. I don't believe Wendy is in a paid position either. She's not really, Melania Trump doesn't have any legislative authority and Wendy does not have any doctrinal authority. So they're kind of people who are in the picture, but they're not really people who, I don't think you can criticize If Say for instance, Melania Trump, the former first lady, if she didn't quote unquote do her job, I don't see what criticism you can lob at her because it's an unpaid position. So I think that criticism of Wendy Nelson should be um, pretty minimal because her, her thoughts are really not binding. She doesn't speak for doctrine and she does not represent the general authorities of the church. So, but I do want to bring up one thing that she said in her, uh, in her, in her speech, and I'm trying to do something new. I've got these clips lined up, so I'm hoping that this is going to work out very well. We're going to find out here, but let me play a clip from uh, Wendy Nelson at the uh, devotional. Let's hope that this plays well. Gratefully, the Savior has paid the price for every gift of the Spirit we will ever need to help us. It's up to us to prayerfully discover which gifts we need. We may need the gift of self-discipline or cheerfulness. Perhaps we need the gift of patience or the gift to be healed or the gift to forgive. Perhaps we need the gift to have our sexual feelings be in harmony with eternal laws. 
Okay, how could you guys hear that pretty good? Yep, came through just fine. Yeah. What did you hear in that little clip from uh, Wendy Nelson? What what, what did you hear there? <laughs> uh, Christina, do you want to head up this one, or do you want me to? <laughs> well, I I feel like I heard homophobia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But yeah. she didn't say anything, but she never specified LGBT. She never said homosexual. She never said the word gay. Yeah, but so it's like they're one of the like more prominent uh, groups within the church membership that have to like kind of suppress the, who they are, especially their sexuality, um, other than, I guess, unmarried uh, people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I do feel like it was implicitly geared towards the LGBT community. Hmm. And so... What 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 I'm hearing you say is that you're you're hearing the term "pray away the gay." Is that what I'm hearing yeah. you say? Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, so you need to pray to get your sexual feelings in yeah. line with what yeah. God wants. And I went back and I looked and I said, well, she didn't necessarily say that flat out that you needed to pray the gay away. So I want to be charitable in my interpretation. And I went back and looked. Uh, at some of her previous statements. And when she went to address uh, a campus, uh, UVU, uh, Utah Valley University campus, which is in Orem, Utah, I was an adjunct faculty member there once upon a time, but she repeated those stances in that speech too. In an address at, um, in an address at UVU, she was, um, she was, uh, uh, I'm sorry, people protested because she had said in an earlier address that people, that LGBTQ folks need to repent to have their quote, sexual feelings be in harmony with eternal laws end quote. And this is commonly referred to as pray away the gay. And that is also in her books. Remember she is a therapist. She's a trained therapist. She had no children before she uh, married president Nelson about 12 years ago. I want to say that that was around 2010. So it's not that you can say with Wendy Nelson that she doesn't know any better because she's a trained Yeah, she therapist. knows exactly what she's saying. Right. You can't just say, okay, you know, she doesn't really, you know, it's not necessarily what she meant. She has previous statements that say that people need to repent and have their sexual feelings be in line with eternal laws. But honestly, I thought that we weren't doing the pray the gay away thing anymore. I thought that that was behind us. We're still doing Pray the Gay Away? I thought that that was well, ancient isn't it, history. Isn't it still very recent that the church advocated for conversion therapy, like a decade or so ago? For sure. Yeah. Well, well, let's be very... So the church now um, says that they reject any, and this is in the handbook, any abusive conversion therapy, uh, any abusive conversion therapy. Yeah. But even as much as, you, as you said, even 10 years ago, some bishops and stake presidents were still sending LG, uh, you know, uh, openly gay and, and lesbian people to church approved um, LDS therapists who were still engaging in so-called conversion therapy. Now, you know, they, they kind of walked that back a little bit, but I just, I, you know, the pray the gay away thing, that is really a scientific claim. When you say that you can pray and get your sexual orientation changed by a divine manner, that's really a scientific claim. And why is it? Because we could do a study on that. We could have take 20 gay people, have 10 of them pray, have 10 of them not pray, come back in six months and see how many of them had their um, uh, sexual orientation changed. I, I'm not aware of any study that does that, but you know what? I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that if you tried it, it wouldn't do anything. I'm just, that's just my, 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 like any know, other study a, with prayer or, or, you know, I can't pray my, to change my sexual orientation. 
you know, I, I can't go through a conversion therapy and stop uh, finding attraction to my wife or stop finding attraction to women. Well, I can't change mine. Not, not with that attitude, you can't do this. <laughs> <laughs> Just try I don't harder. Have, pray harder. I don't have enough faith. <laughs> I think the problem here is that I don't have enough faith. So I, I just oh, find that to be, yeah, I guess I, I, I guess I, I, you're, you know what you guys, I was <laughs> called out and I'm just going to take that. I, I was definitely called out here. So, you know, if you look at some of these people who have gone through these, uh, conversion, so-called gay conversion therapies, you know, they, they would say quotes like, I found this from another, um, from another scholarly article from Golden Gate University. It says, quote, I could not pray hard enough. And it was because there was something broken with me end quote. I had no one to blame but myself, as God would not have burdened me with this evil otherwise. And I really just thought that this was something that you wouldn't get in 2022 anymore in the church, because the church used to teach that homosexuality was you know, caused by pornography, or was caused by masturbation, or was caused by husbands not being in the home, or the women working outside of the home, or men were not manly enough, or women were not womanly enough. The men should have been playing so with- So ridiculous. Yeah. And I thought that the, we, I thought that the church has now- I thought that honestly, I thought the church said, you know what? Okay, we're not going to do that anymore. We're not going to do pray the gay away. We're, we're, we don't know where it comes from, and we're just going to leave it alone. But when you get the statement from Wendy Nelson in the worldwide conference that says that we need to pray to God to have our sexual feelings change and be in alignment, that really just smacks of pray the gay away for me. Yeah, certainly does. Um, so that's, that's item number one. That's the only thing I want to say about Wendy Nelson. Now, as far as, um, as far I, you know, it's very unusual for a prophet's wife to speak. You know, think about Marjorie Hinckley. I mean, do you remember Marjorie Hinckley, Christina? Or is that before your time? I don't know. <laughs> but and there's probably a reason that you don't. It's because I don't ever remember her getting up and giving a speech that had doctrinal content in it, or even any controversial content. And I don't even remember Thomas Monson's wife's name. Do you, Al? Uh, no, I don't. No, um, we don't remember these people because. All, all that, yeah, all that I remember about Marjorie Hinckley is they would bring her out to talk to the Relief Society from time to time, and they would always ask her about her husband, Gordon B. Hinckley. Yeah, yeah, but I thought that— uh... I thought it was very unusual to bring her out and give anything that had any doctrine on the church, which I find very fascinating. Um, but I thought that President Nelson, his overall comments, I thought that he had a great rapport with his audience. And he remember, he's 97 years old. When I, my, unfortunately, all of my grandparents are dead my, on both sides. I don't have any grandparents right now, but my wife's grandparents are still alive and they're in their 80s. And believe me, they are not as clear they are not as as cogent. They are not all there. So I thought President Nelson had a real good command of his. He had good rapport, good command of his subject. He was very clear. He was very lucid. And this is in contrast to some of the previous presidents when they get up there past their nineties. Yeah, good luck uh, trying to get them even through their teleprompter. So I give him major. If I am as lucid and clear as he is when I'm ninety seven, I will be uh, consider myself very blessed. So he he cracked a he cracked a couple of jokes. Also, which I thought it showed his humanity. Um, let me play one of those quotes for you. Hopefully, I've got these queued up very well. In short, I have lived a long time. And at this point, I have stopped by bananas. Me too. I think, I think <laughs> it's, showing, it's showing that he's got a good rapport. He's got a good sense of humor. Um, 
he stopped buying green bananas because he knows he's not going to be around forever. He's got a big cheesy grin on his face. I love it. That's the kind of humanity that I like to get from a leader of the church. I, I think I think that that's tremendous. He also. I don't. What was that? Me, like any any joke that a prophet or apostle makes in his um, in his talk just seems inauthentic to me. I don't know if that's just me though, but it seemed very authentic yeah. to me. Uh, maybe it didn't to you, but it seemed very genuine to me. Um, he also had he also showed that he was very hip to the pop culture by using some uh, acronyms that you that you don't necessarily see. So here's another one of his quotes here where he gets a good audience reaction and he's using some young lingo. Remember, he's addressing the young members of the church. So he's using young lingo. So check out this next quote. OK. These truths are to prompt your ultimate sense of FOMO. Ha 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 fear of missing out. I'm glad he defined so that for us. <laughs> so, so he, yeah, for fear of missing out. He's using, I think he's got a good sense of humor and I think that his audience is really taking to his message. Now, uh, getting into more of his actual substance of this particular address, um, it's, it's very interesting to me to, to see some of the things that he brings up. So the first item that I want to discuss is he mentions the priesthood restoration. And I just want to play this clip that talks about um, his thoughts about the priesthood restoration. How wonderful it is to meet with you on the anniversary of the restoration of the Aaronic priesthood. As you know, on May 15th, 1829, the prophet Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery knelt in a secluded spot in the woods near Joseph and Emma's home in Harmony, Pennsylvania. Sister Nelson and I have been to that grove of sugar maples. This grove became sacred when John the Baptist conferred the Aaronic priesthood upon Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. Later, Peter, James, and John restored the Melchizedek priesthood in the same general area. Now, I find that to be the reason that I bring up this priesthood restoration is, first of all, you will note that he never gives the date for the Melchizedek priesthood restoration. He said that we're here on the exact anniversary of the Aaronic priesthood restoration, but he just said that a, a while later, we got the Melchizedek Priesthood Restoration. Yeah. Now, I'm not a person who's been tutored by many angels or any angels that I'm aware of. But I think if Peter, James, and John had come to visit me and ordained me to the Melchizedek Priesthood as resurrected beings, I might be able to remember what day that happened. Now, I, do, I wasn't tutored by my I didn't see God the Father and Jesus Christ. I didn't see Moroni. I didn't see Nephi. I didn't, didn't see John the Baptist. I didn't see any of these people. So maybe it was so commonplace for Joseph Smith that he didn't write it down. But I just think that, hmm, I think that I would have made note of that. So we don't know when the Melchizedek Priesthood Restoration happened. I'm more surprised that we know when the Aaronic Priesthood Restoration happened, like that he remembered to write that date down. Well, um, let me just let me just talk about that, and that's because uh, like the this is from uh, R Richard Bushman from Rough Stolen Rolling, and he said, "quote Summarizing the key events of his religious life in an 1830 statement, Joseph Smith mentioned translation, but said nothing about the restoration of the priesthood or the visit of the angel. The first compilation of Revelations in 1833 also omitted an account of John the Baptist. David Whitmer told." an interviewer, that he had heard nothing of John the Baptist until four years after the church's organization. Not until mm -hmm. writing in his 1832 history did Joseph Smith include, quote, reception of the holy priesthood by ministering of angels to administer the letter of the gospel among the cardinal events of his history, and quote, a glancing reference at the best. The late appearance of these accounts raises the possibility of later 
fabrication, end quote. And again, this is not some anti-Mormon. This is Richard Bushman, state president and a professor at Yale. What Richard Bushman is saying, well, what do you hear from that quote, uh, Christina, regarding the priesthood restoration? Um, what do you mean? What, 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 what is Richard Bushman trying to tell us about the priesthood restoration claims? Remember, President Nelson is saying that the, that the priesthood was, was uh, restored in 1829. Richard Bushman seems to be telling something else. Uh, I personally, I, I am not sure. So what, what Richard Bushman is saying is he's echoing what David Whitmer said that, quote, I never I never heard that an angel had ordained Joseph and Oliver to the Ironic priesthood until the year 1834, quote, and, and quote, and that's from early Mormon documents. So Richard Bushman and David Whitmer are saying that they heard nothing about the priesthood restoration until at least four years after the event. And remember, this is after the founding of the church. So according to according to President Nelson, the Ironic priesthood was restored to uh, Joseph Smith in 1829. But then when the church was founded, he told no one about it for at least another three years, and according to David Whitmer, four. So it casts that's great the doubt. Same, it's the same thing with the first vision. Yeah. Right? Right. It seems a bit, yeah, unrealistic. Right. So, we, we don't hear about it until much later and, uh, and until it serves some sort of a purpose that certainly benefits Joseph Smith by telling it. Right. And the purpose that it served was this is the time of the Missouri Wars and Joseph needed to solidify his authority because the church was going through schisms and different factions were potentially emerging. And this church could have been broken into a number of different uh, factions. And you might have not had the church that we have today. He wanted to solidify his authority. And that's when he began telling these stories. That's not to say that the stories did not happen. It's just it seems pretty convenient on the timing. So when President Nelson is affirming that, yes, this happened in 1829, and the Melchizedek priesthood happened a short time later, and the history of, you can trust David Whitmer as far as early church history is concerned. I don't think you're going to find a more reliable source, nor Richard Bushman. Richard Bushman knows his history. So yeah. when he says that this raises the possibility of later fabrication, um, I really trust Richard Bushman on that. So it seems like President Nelson is giving us a historical claim here, which is, at, to put it at least mildly, very tenuous. Mm -hmm. uh, David Whitmer's relationship with Joseph Smith in uh, early church history is very fascinating to me because he's, it, it seems like Joseph uh, earlier on was talking to David Whitmer like, okay, well, I, I'm going to be the translator and kind of this seer, but we're going to need uh, a, a real uh, strong leader. And you could be that strong leader of the church to kind of be the president and to head things up. And, you know, uh, David Whitmer was very ambitious. And uh, he, and when the church left Kirtland, David Whitmer tried at that time to overthrow Joseph as uh, a fallen prophet and tried to take over the reins of the church. Yeah, and I, I, that's why I trust David Whitmer a lot is because he left the church, he was excommunicated, but he never recounted his testimony. So when he gives evidence of the Aaronic priesthood and the Melchizedek priesthood restoration not being mentioned ever, um, I really put a lot of stock into it, and that's why Richard Bushman does too. So it's just tough for me when President Nelson is making a historical claim that seems to run counter to what one would expect. It's difficult for me. Now, the next uh, thing that I want to bring up here is— uh, it's amazing how many uh, already scientific claims we have so far. We have uh, uh, gay therapy that we um, 
that, that Wendy Nelson brought up. We also have specific dates, which seem to be in doubt, but the scientific claims are really um, a lot, even in this devotional, which doesn't seem to have anything to do with science whatsoever. What does science have to do with the devotional? But President Nelson makes more scientific claims. And this is from the next, uh, from uh, our 13840. He makes another scientific claim right here. Let me play this for you. Some might label me as an old man. But I'm yes, a lot I younger than Adam. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so in case you missed it, he says I'm a lot younger than Adam and a lot younger than Noah. So according to the Bible, uh, Adam was 930 years old when he died. Mm -hmm. And yeah. also, according to the Bible, Noah was, oh, I've got this in my notes here. Noah, according to Genesis, Genesis 9, was also, uh, was 950. Adam was 930 in Genesis 5.5, and Noah was 950 in Genesis 9.28. scientifically impossible. Mm -hmm. so, so that's the problem here, is that when we look back through history, people are not getting older as we go through history. When we dig up fossil skeletons, we have bones of people who've lived a long time ago, and scientists are amazing. They can date these things. What, what we found is that people, as you get older and older uh, or farther and farther away from the present time, their lifespans shrink. They don't increase because, you know, they didn't have modern medicines, vaccines and things like that. So he's making it's not only that people that, that's a scientific claim. Number one, that people were much older in times past. We've never seen that. We've never encountered that. It seems to run contrary to what um, one would expect. OK, so that's claim number one. But claim number two also is that there was a literal man named Adam. Now, I wouldn't expect that President Nelson would make a joke about being as old as Zeus or as old as, uh, I don't know, uh, Odysseus or something like that. He wouldn't make a joke about being as old as a, fiction, a purely fictional character. When he's yeah. saying, I'm not as old as Adam, he's saying that there really was an Adam. And Adam, we, we know from genetics and, uh, and other things that, you know, when you go back 6,000 years, there... Um, that's that there's no common ancestor who was named, you know, that could have been named Adam 6,000 years ago. So it's another scientific claim of saying that we all came from one stock um, about 6,000 years ago. So it's another claim. And the third claim, the, he's got so many scientific claims, is that there was a literal man named Noah, which of course means that there was a flood. Now remember, according to Joseph Smith, Noah was American. Okay, because Adam on Diamond, which I've been to, it's a beautiful place. It's in Missouri. It's a very spiritual place that I've been to. Um, I'd really like to go back there sometime. But Noah, he was American because the flood took him over to the old world. So it couldn't have just been a local flood or, you know, it was a small little deal. In order to get from America all the way over to the ocean, you really need a pretty big flood. You really yeah. need a big flood. Worldwide flood. Mm -hmm. You need a worldwide flood. So he's making a number of scientific claims in just this little section. Number one, that there was, uh, that we came from a common ancestor named Adam a short time ago. Number two, that humans lived to be very long a long time ago. And number three, that there was a global flood. And when you go onto Wikipedia, you look up the global flood, it says that it's pseudoscience. And it's got about 20 different um, scholarly articles in there that shows that the global flood is um, extremely unlikely. So yeah. there's all these scientific claims that are baked into this seemingly benign devotional. Uh, and se several uh, contemporary Christian scholars are uh, taking a look back at these characters of the Old Testament, especially the ones that are in the books of Moses, because these are the books that Moses wrote down, right? So Moses is taking a bunch of um, uh, mythology or ancient stories and writing them all down. And so uh, we, 
they used to for a long for a long time a lot of christian uh sects believed literally and so, several of them still do believe it literally they're really really trying to fit that peg into that hole and and make it work but uh it seems more like it, uh a lot of people are taking the approach that these are stories that were written down and they just gave uh, the the symbolic person adam the name adam or the yeah Right. I mean, a lot of people, what, what, what a lot of people do is they just say, okay, these are metaphors. These yeah. are things that happen. This is just a metaphor of creation. But the problem is, is when you make a joke and you equate them and say that these are implicitly are real people who lived at a real time, you can't interpret that as a metaphor. President Nelson interprets the Bible literally. Yeah. When he says Adam was 930 years old when he died, he believes it. When he says that Noah was 950, he believes it. He's a literal Bible thinker. He doesn't just explain the tough things away in the Bible and say, oh, that's a metaphor. He's a literal Bible believer. Well, that's not a really a surprise to me because that's what the church teaches and that's what's in all you know the church mm-hmm. manuals, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So absolutely. I don't feel like it's that controversial for him to be saying that, but it's just kind mm-hmm. of a surprise, I guess. Uh, it's, it, it's a surprise that he would still hold on to that and bring it up. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, he doesn't find for, for him, there's no embarrassment in it. These are godly sources of knowledge. You know, that's what the whole point of this devotional was, is that it was contrasting worldly knowledge and secular knowledge with what we have from the scriptures and what he calls in the devotional, he called it a truth-filled sources. And the truth-filled sources, they trump what you can get from university learning. So it does not matter if scientists are in almost unanimous agreement that there was no Adam-like person who lived 6,000 years ago. That doesn't matter because truth-filled sources are your most important source of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And as I've said before in our podcast, when science and religion get into contrast with one another and people have determined that the scientific aspect is true, that can prove be a big problem for their faith. Mm-hmm. Sure can. Now, remember, if there's no Adam, no, if there's no literal Adam, you could say, okay, well, Adam is a metaphor. If there's no literal Adam, if you think about the endowment ceremony, then there's no need for an atonement. Because as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. You need a literal Adam to have, remember, Adam was the first Adam. Jesus was the second Adam. So you could say, well, this happened a long time ago. This Adam and Eve thing, that, you know, that didn't happen 6,000 years ago. Well, here's the next quote that I'm going to give you from President Nelson's talk. It's just amazing how many scientific claims that he makes in a seemingly innocuous devotional. But here's the next claim. When did Adam live? Let's find out. Heavenly Father has sent his children to earth for more than six millennia. Most of those people have not yet received the ordinances that would qualify them for eternal life. Okay. So how long has he been sending? How long have humans been on this planet? More than 6,000 years. Is that a true statement? Technically, yes. (laughs) Why is there so much technicality? Joseph Smith technically had one wife. (laughs) Why is there so much technicality? Yes, for more than six, that's true. Humans have been on the planet for more than six millennia. That is a true statement. The the actual truth is that they've been on this planet for about 2.5 million years. We're talking about an order of magnitude difference here. And what's CD days? That's more than six thousand. That is true. Okay, <laughs> that's absolutely true. 
is he that's a true statement but it's a far cry from really what reality what this is telling me is that president nelson is a young earth creationist he's a literal bible believer who believes in a real adam real noah flood and a 6,000-year earth, which is in conformity with what the Doctrine and Covenants said. Remember, Joseph Smith had a question and answer with the Lord in the Doctrine and Covenants, and he found out that the earth has a 7,000-year temporal history. So more than 6,000 6 millennia um, would be in accordance with that. President Nelson is a real, literal Bible believer. And remember, it just doesn't, doesn't end there. And President Nelson had a famous uh, uh, interview, one of the few interviews that he did with the press back in Pew Research. This is on pewresearch.org. This is back in 2007, in it, which President Nelson says, quote, man has always been man. Dogs have always been dogs. Monkeys have always been monkeys. It's just the way that genetics works, end quote. So, what this is telling us is that President Nelson is in the same vein as Joseph Fielding Smith. Joseph Fielding Smith, as president of the church, said that you can either believe in evolution or you can believe in the church. You can't believe in both. And President Nelson is of the same mindset. Young Earth creation, no evolution. Yeah, effectively what he has done is um, where other scholars or uh, like religious uh, uh, students would be trying to fit that peg into that hole. Uh, he's effectively closing the door on any kind of uh, alternative explanation. So it can't be metaphor. He's he's closing that door. You bet. And in, remember, just one last thing on this, all, all this young earth stuff. In April 2012 General Conference, Elder Nelson stated, quote, anybody who studies the workings of the human body has surely seen God moving in his majesty and power because the body is governed with divine law and healing comes by obedience to the law upon which that blessing is predicated. Yet some erroneously think that these marvelous physical attributes happened by chance or resulted from a big bang somewhere. Ask yourself, could an explosion in a printing shop produce a dictionary? The likelihood is most remote, but if so, it could never heal its own torn pages or reproduce its own newer editions, end quote. So again, there's no, it's not, he thinks that evolution is kind of a chance sort of thing, and it's just, it's not likely to happen. So this is all in line with what he has said in the past. He continues well, to echo God is it. also not likely to exist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, in the same vein. So even in a talk that is really about, I don't think that the young adults, I, I, Christina, help me out. I don't think that the young adults were going to this particular devotional to hear all of these scientific claims. I think that they have a lot of other things in their lives that um, matter to them rather than all of the science, but he cannot divorce himself from all of the science that is inside of him. You can't just divorce you know, the scientific part of the church and the faith field and say, it's okay that, you know, I, I don't have the answers to these science things because they come up all the time. Mm -hmm. That He's making a dangerous statement there as a, as a doctor. He's saying that uh, the way that healing happens is by obedience. So essentially he's saying that if you want to be healed, uh, you need to repent and be obedient to some sort of law. Uh, a lot of what, I mean, you may not even know what law it is that you're breaking or that you're not being obedient to, but that's the claim that he's saying, which is a scientific claim again. And so what, what does the, uh, 24 year old cancer patient that, you know, didn't ask to, to get cancer They're all of a sudden, let's say they're, they got thyroid cancer. Their thyroid just all of a sudden went berserk and started growing this excess mass on it of cells that are dead, but they keep reproducing more and more dead cells and it just eats away at them. The, he's saying that that person needs to repent 
of something in order to get healing. I am disgusted by that claim. Well, if dogs have always been dogs, then why do they share 99.5% of their DNA with wolves? That's yeah. a, that's an odd thing. Why why would why it's kind of a trickster god. God made wolves and dogs so similar on their DNA level that anyone who looked back and look at it would think that they were associated. Chimpanzees wow. and chimpanzees and orangutans and and humans, we share 99% of DNA as well. With orangutans our closest uh, closest uh, nephews or or cousins or however you want to say it, we share 99% of DNA with them. It's kind of like, well, why would God try to trick us? Why wouldn't he have the DNA be a little bit different so that we didn't think that we um, had evolved from a common ancestor? Yeah, well, I actually know some people who believe in, some Mormons who believe in evolution um, when it comes to animals, but not when it comes to humans. Um, right. It's just a very confusing stance. Um, but maybe <laughs> maybe God just likes to copy paste uh, his creations. I don't know. <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's hard to know. Um, I've only got two last clips here. Um, that I, that I want to play. So here, here's one more clip for us, um, and then we're going to be wrapping things up. Let's see. Let's get our reaction to this one. It can be fun and indicate your support for any number of positive things. Many labels will change for you with the passage of time, and not all labels are of equal value. But if any label replaces your most important identifiers, the results can be spiritually suffocating. For example, if I were to rank in order, the designation set could be applied to me. I would say, first, I am a child of God. I'm a son of God. Then, a son of the covenant, a disciple of Jesus Christ. And those are the three labels that he thinks are most important in your life, is that I'm a child of God, that's a label. I'm a son of God, that's a label. And a son of the covenant, that's a label. And then he puts his other labels much further down the line. For instance, being a husband or a father or an apostle or having a PhD or anything else. Those are the most important labels that a person can have. But I, I really want to talk about those that labeling system. And I think that according to church teachings, God really cares about your sexual orientation as well. Whether you're LGBTQIA+, that really matters a lot, according to the church teachings, because you really can't—it um, just matters a lot, doesn't it, Christina? Whether you're LGBTQ, that's, that label would really matter to God, according to church teachings, right? Yeah, yeah, it does because it definitely inhibits you from living a certain, you know, living the lifestyle that you would want for yourself and expressing who you really are. And it could potentially bar you from the celestial kingdom because if you're uh, gay and you're trying to live the church's teachings, then you can't marry anyone in the temple. And remember, the celestial kingdom is for people who are married to members of the opposite sex and are sealed in the temple. So it seems like that label would be really important to God, but he doesn't bring it up. Okay. Another label that I think is very important, according to church teachings that he doesn't discuss is race. Why do I say that? Well, for 150 years, your race was really important to God. If you were black, you couldn't go into the temple. You couldn't have the priesthood. You couldn't get endowed. You couldn't be sealed. You couldn't have the blessings of the gospel. You couldn't even go into a priesthood quorum. So race was really important to God for a long time. And not just during the blacks and the priesthood, think about the biblical times. Only the Israelites were the chosen people. Everyone else was, um, you know, ripe for, uh, you know, genocide or, or um, you know, was uh, not, not the chosen people. If you weren't an Israelite, then you weren't chosen person. So your race really matters. And same with Nephites and Lamanites. If you were a Nephite, 
you were good to go. You could have the priesthood. You could be blessed. If you're a Lamanite, you are dark and loathsome. If you're a Nephite, you are pure and delightsome. Race, according to the church's teachings, has been an incredibly important part of our history. But that's not one of the labels that he thinks is very important. And I wonder why. He's uh, guys focus on some interesting things here. And um, you make a very good point that he's skipping a lot of the things that have been traditionally taught as super important. Right. And I also want to mention one other label that he doesn't bring up, and that's your age. So your age, according to the church teachings, is very important to God as well. And you're oh, like, well, yes, it is. How, how could that be? Because why does God care if I'm 45 or if I'm 55? It makes a difference, right? Actually, it does. It makes a big difference. So whether you're the age of accountability is eight years old. So if you're seven years and, 12 mo- and 11 months and 28 days, you can commit no sin. And if you die, you go straight to the celestial kingdom. As soon as you turn eight years old, you can start committing sin and you could eventually be a son of perdition. So your age being eight years old, that's a really important thing to God. Also, when you turn 12 years old, if you're a boy, you can receive the priesthood. If you're a girl, sorry, no luck to that. But um, same with become 14, you become a teacher. 16, you become a priest. And if you're a girl, you can go on a mission when you're 19. If you're a boy, you can go on a mission when you're 18. If it, All of these ages are very important to God because they're part of your progression according to church teachings. Your age is a really big deal. But he doesn't bring up age as an important label, um, even though, according to church teachings, it is. Have you ever met a child that's you know younger than the age of eight? Uh, age is extremely important to them, even down to the months or fractions. Yeah, they are. And I also, um, just a couple last things to wrap up on this. I thought that President Nelson also, he was very active in addressing doubts. And we don't have time to go through that. But I find it remarkable that the president of the church is really in a public forum talking so much about doubts. I don't remember President Nelson, uh, President Hinckley ever talking about it. I don't remember President Monson really discussing it. But it seems to be coming up more and more. I think President Nelson knows that um, the church, that there's a lot of doubts that are taking place in the church. And I think he's really trying to address it. Now, there's one last thing that I want to bring up, and that's um, that President Nelson, he does say um, in, in the devotional that as the Lord's prophet, I bless you. I just want to discuss what kind of a prophet that President Nelson says that he is. It must be a different kind of prophet than the one that I'm used to reading in the scriptures. So think about Moses. He parted the Red Sea. He brought forth manna and quails. He summoned plagues and pestilences to defeat Pharaoh. Enoch, he translated an entire city. Elijah, the prophet in the Old Testament, raised the widow widow of Zarephath's son from the dead, and he called forth fire from heaven to consume the priests of Baal. Daniel, (laughs) he he escaped the lion's den, and Daniel gave many prophecies Mm -hmm. that came true. St. Paul in the New Testament, he healed the sick, he raised the dead. Remember, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give unto you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, arise and walk. He even healed an entire city in Acts chapter 20. And John the Revelator, if you read the book of Revelation, it is filled with prophecy and um, what is going to happen in the future. Well, you can say, well, that's in the Bible. Well, what about the Book of Mormon? Lehi prophesied the name of the Messiah 600 years prior to, to Jesus' birth. Nephi built an amazing, miraculous, transoceanic vessel. He predicted Christopher Columbus and many other things. The brother of Jared made transoceanic submarines, and Helaman led the stripling warriors in a truly miraculous battle in which none of them were slain. Think about the modern age. 
Joseph Smith saw God in Jesus. He was tutored by angelic messengers for years. He translated ancient scripture, both, uh, both the Book of Mormon and the Book of Abraham. Joseph Smith received angelic visitations in the Kirtland Temple from angelic messengers that were witnessed by many people, including Sidney Rigdon, Oliver Cowdery, and many others. Virtually every prophet in history has brought forth new scripture with very few exceptions. These prophets put their lives on the line, and they did amazing and miraculous things time and time again. Yes, but even so, Wendy in her talk, at the end of her talk, she said that she can testify in court that Nelson is God's prophet. And she often talks about all the revelations that he has in the middle of the night, about the like the smallest things. And it just seems like it's very different, like you said, from the like the traditional uh, conception of what a prophet is. It must be a different kind of prophet. And I'm really glad that you brought that up, Christina, because we can look at Russell M. Nelson's. Um, he has had revelations. So let's examine some of the revelations briefly that he has brought forward. President Nelson was the president of the Quorum of the Twelve when the policy of exclusion, which barred gay uh, children from participating fully in the church until they're 18. That was while Thomas S. Monson was in mental decline with dementia. So that was President Nelson's doing. And in the BYU-Hawaii talk, which was given a short time after the policy of exclusion came forward, President Nelson specifically said that that policy was the R word, a revelation from God. It's okay, so, so that's, specific. Yeah, there's a lot of bold statements being made. Yes. So it was, it was a revelation that it was received and was a revelation that it was taken away. So those are some of the revelations we have from him. What else? Combining elders and high priests, which happened a couple of years ago. That was not just a policy thing. President Nelson said that that was a revelation from God. And that's why our opening, by the way, it kind of makes fun of that. It says that uh, uh, if you listen to the entire Weird Alma song that, that's our opening, mm -hmm. it kind of it mocks the idea of that being a revelation. That is one of the smallest revelations that has ever been revealed to humans on this planet. A minor reorganization of a couple of, of, a couple of 100,000 men in a priesthood quorum. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like he wants to get the membership more accustomed to these small miracles. Yeah. Revelation has really gone down. Uh, and also also dropping the missionary age. That was a revelation. When missionaries used to be, men used to be 19, and now they're 18. Women used to be 21, now they're 19. That was a revelation too. Now, those are a couple of, of President Nelson's revelations. Compare the quality of those revelations with the revelations of John the Beloved in the book of Revelations, or the allegory of the olive tree in Jacob chapter 5 of the Book of Mormon, or with section 77 of the Doctrine and Covenants, or with Joseph Smith's King Follett Discourse. Mm -hmm. The quality of those revelations is so much smaller than yeah. what we've had in the past. I, I guess um, God doesn't expect as much of us anymore. But that's sad. That's a real sad thought. It seems like the world needs um, these kind of revelations and these kind of prophets more than ever. Absolutely. Our world is in total chaos. Um, our, our world is in upheaval. And to have a prophet of old, like the kind that I read about that I read my whole life in the scriptures, both uh, Latter-day Saint scriptures and in the Bible, the world is crying for that kind of a leader. It's yeah. crying for the kind of revelations that we read about, as I mentioned, in those incredible books of scripture that we've had in the past. The prophets that we have today, um, President Nelson's um, prophetic line, either he is unwilling or unable to continue that truly prophetic mantle that we've seen in the past. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, there's a there's a stark contrast. I'm really intrigued by uh, what Christina said. Uh, Wendy Nelson said she would testify in a court of law that uh, Russell M. is a prophet. 
I, I go back when it talks about uh, prophets to Deuteronomy 13 and what it says uh, about prophets back then. It says, uh, if somebody comes among you and says that they speak for God, then have them give you a prophecy and see if that prophecy comes to pass. If it doesn't come to pass, they're not a true prophet. If it does, then they are. And it's pretty simple, but I, I'm not seeing any prophesying. I, 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 we're seeing revelations, sure, but I'm not seeing any prophesying. And I'm not seeing if stuff's coming to pass. So it, it's a really, I, I don't know how she can testify that she knows he's a prophet without having any prophecy to test. Think about Joseph, uh, you know, Joseph and the amazing Technicolor dream code in the Old Testament. He interpreted Pharaoh's dream and saw seven years of famine and then seven years of plenty. Imagine if Joseph had been the head of the church, we could have seen the pandemic. Yeah. Unfortunately, Joseph was not the head of the church when this pandemic came out. So the world needs a prophet right now. The world needs these kind of prophetic insights. The world yeah. needs these kind of revelations and scriptures. The world needs the direction that we've seen in the past. And from this talk, which had, which is really, um, which is a real contrast to science. See, the thing is, is that with President Nelson's, all of these prophetic claims are extremely hard for me or anyone else to really uh, verify. I, I, there's not a way, way for me to know if these revelations that he's brought forward are really from God, but I can know if these scientific claims hold up. And as we've mentioned in this podcast, all of the scientific claims that were made by both Wendy and President Nelson in this devotional are um, really suspect. And that really clouds or, or shines, that really puts in darkness the rest of his message saying, I'm giving you the Lord's true light. When the rest of your message, we know that dogs, they weren't always dogs and monkeys weren't monkeys and there was no global flood and um, humans have been on the planet a really long time. But believe the rest of the things that I'm telling you. That's really hard for me to do. Yeah. That's a big ask. <laughs> yeah, sure is. Sure is. Um, for th those listeners, I wanna, uh, Christina, do you have any more thoughts on this young adult, uh, the young adult devotional? Or we're about ready to wrap it up. Yeah, no, I think that's pretty much it. We really covered it quite thoroughly. If, if you listeners out there have any comments for us, drop us an email. We're at colob at mormonnewsroundup.org. That's K-O-L-O-B at mormonnewsroundup.org. Or visit us on Twitter. We're at News Mormon. Or visit us on Facebook or YouTube. Drop us a like. Drop us a subscription. Uh, to my co-hosts, uh, Christina and Al, I want to thank you all for uh, ruminating with me about the great and spacious beehive. And thanks so much for being here. And tune in with us next week. Yeah, uh, another big thanks to Weird Alma for letting us use his music. I'm going to send you off with one of his. Thanks again, Christiana. Uh, go over and uh, check her out with uh, her podcast. What's your podcast name again, Christiana? It's called Latter-day Ramblings. That's right. So go give her some likes and listens. Uh, thanks again for joining us. Here we go. When it comes to nicknames of the church, such as LDS Church, the Mormon Church, to remove the Lord's name from the Lord's Church is a major victory for Satan. 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 Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a being with no moral constraints. My number one goal is to hurt the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. 
So many evil things I could do But still my favorite way to oppress Is to call the church members Mormons Or abbreviate to LDS Hey there, brothers and sisters. Thanks for listening to the Mormon News Roundup. And if you are enjoying this show, please consider making a donation. Patreon makes an important contribution to helping us ruminate on the great and spacious beehive here. So thanks so much to everyone for for supporting us on patreon.com.